0: Uh, let's stand, grab your Bibles, stand up to Hebrews, or uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 6, and in respect and honor to God's Word, let's, uh, let's stand and read it together. The passage we're going to cover this morning, Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4. By the way, there are handouts for the sermon notes if you want them at the back and at the front of the room. You can grab those if you'd like. Um, here's what God's Word says, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Salvation. Promises. This is God's Word. And Father, this morning, we want to hear from you. God, may we not be dull of hearing this morning. This isn't about information transfer. This is about us needing to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is about us needing to have hearts that are moldable and surrendered and soft to you, Father. We live in a world of lies. We've been discipled by the world. We've been transformed by the thinking of this world. And God, we need you to transform us into the thinking of your kingdom. So God, would you soften our hearts, Lord, everyone in here this morning, including me, to feel the gravitas of this passage, the weight of this warning, is exhortation. God, may we not just hear and walk away, but may we hear and apply and examine this morning. In Jesus' name. Let's sing this together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, if there's one thing that causes people to be confused, I think in in general, it especially within Christianity, and, and maybe not even just confused, but also scared, it is the thought, the question: can I lose this salvation that I have gained? Can, I, can, it, can it be taken or can I lose it or can I reject it or can I walk away from it? Could there be a time in my life where this this faith that I now have in Christ would no longer remain? It's a pretty intense question. A lot of Christians think about that. A lot of non-Christians think about that. How do I know if I'm truly saved? Uh, there was a, a, you know, from time to time, and it happens very common, that there'll be uh, someone who we just would think was for sure a believer. And then that someone sometimes will walk away from the faith and it leaves us questioning, leaves us puzzled. We're a little confused. One of these, uh, happened a couple years ago. It was a guy by the name of Josh Harris and we familiar with him wrote a really popular book uh, about dating when he was like single, which is always a dumb idea. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, wait till you, yeah. Okay. Um, anyways, he was, he was really just a, a, an impressive guy, charismatic, pastored a large church, was t- uh, sort of mentored by C.J. Mahaney in the sovereign grace sphere um, for, for probably 20 years, pastored, preached good, biblical, sound, expository preaching, wrote books, spoke at conferences, seemingly just fruit, right? And then a couple years ago, he denied the faith, deconstructed himself right out of the fundamentals of orthodox Christianity. Now, I don't know what's gonna happen with, with him. We can pray for him, pray that he truly will come back to Christ. But, but that kind of stuff really messes with us, right? I mean, it's one thing when like, when like the guy that, that you know, was hardly ever really faithful sort of falls away. But then, but then when somebody that just seemed like they were really on track with following the Lord, when they fall away, it's just confusing. It like messes with our matrix on our head. What is that all about? I'm not necessarily here to speculate about Josh Harris. He's just the first example that came to my mind. He's not the first. He won't be the last. There's a litany of particularly millennials right now, my age, people that are deconstructing their faith all the way beyond the studs uh, and actually throwing the gospel out completely. Usually under the banner or the flag of church hurt, right? Church hurt me, so Jesus must not be Lord. Deconstructing themselves completely out of Christianity. How are we to think about this? Can we be assured of our salvation? Can we know that our faith will preserve? These are questions we need to ask. And this is the question that our text is drawing us in to ask and interact with this morning. Should we have assurance in our faith? Should we have confidence in our salvation? And if so, how can we know? How can we know for sure that we have truly been born again? adopted into the kingdom of God? How can we truly know that his spirit has come in and regenerated our hearts? How can we have assurance? And should we have assurance? How much assurance should we have? These are the questions that our text is gonna bring us to interact with this morning. Our text this morning uh, seems to be a warning passage, which there's many warning passages in the book of Hebrews. This is one of them, perhaps the most intense one. Uh, there are many warning passages. Our, our, our text seems to be the author of Hebrews warning his audience, his church that, that he leads as a pastor, this circuit of churches even, warning them that the path that they seem to be on could end in ruin. It could end in disaster. And it could lead to this place that's terrifying. That really, is going to be referred to here as the impossibility of repentance, What a terrifying idea. Can we reach a point in our life where it is no longer possible to repent and turn to God? This is kind of what our passage is is talking about here a little bit this morning. And by the way, this is probably one of the most challenging and technical passages that I've ever had to teach. Gotten to teach, get to teach. Uh, it really was a wrestling match this week. I mean, this is this is a passage that has been debated about countless times by scholars those that would sort of emphasize our security in our salvation versus those who would emphasize maybe that, that we can lose our faith, argue about this verse all the time. So we're gonna try to go slow, and we're gonna try to be careful, but we're gonna try to stay within the context of the larger passage, right? We're not gonna pull it out of its, its, its place and forget everything that's been said before it and is gonna be said after it. It seems to me that the, the author is concerned for the trajectory of his audience And he's trying to bring correction. He's concerned that they're doing two things. That they're holding loose and that they're drawing back. They're holding loose Jesus and they're drawing back from the throne of grace. And that's why last week we saw the exhortation from the author to do what? Hold fast and draw near. The, the temptation, the natural trajectory of our flesh is to draw back and to hold loosely Christ. And the exhortation of this whole book is to hold tight, hold on fast to Jesus, draw near to the throne of God, because Jesus has made it possible for us to be in his presence and to grow in our faith. Last week, if you remember, we learned about the immaturity of, of being on the bottle of not truly feasting on the riches of Christ and the gospel and the depths of who he is and what he's done because you're so focused on the fundamental things that were supposed to get you to Jesus, right? He's warned them of this. The author this morning wants us to take seriously the riches of God's grace lest those very riches not soften our hearts but actually harden our hearts against God is the concern, he intends to both scare, I think, his audience, as well as encourage his audience. I think this, this passage, and really the whole book of Hebrews, kind of feels like one of those giant boats that, that gets steered by little tugboats that bump into the sides, right? So here's the big boat, and he's and just like, watch out, be careful, tugboat, and then, but you're good, don't worry, be assured, but watch out for this. Take heart. You're good. Have assurance. It's like boom, boom, boom. That's kind of what our passage feels like. He's going to sort of terrify us, but then he's going to reassure us and encourage us. And I think that's actually what's going to keep us sort of straight and exactly in the middle where we need to be. So if you have the handout or if you're taking notes, our passage breaks into three sections very nicely. The first section is verse four through eight. It's where we're gonna spend the majority of our time because that's the the troubled passage, the passage that people argue about. And we're gonna call that the concern, the author's concern. Secondly, verses nine through 10, he's going to get encouraging and he's gonna give the commendation. And then thirdly, he's going to give the call in verse 11 through 12. So the concern, four through eight, commendation, nine and 10, and the call, 11 through 12. Let's start with the concern that our author has for the audience that he's writing to. Remember, this is a pastoral letter. This is not a systematic theology. This is not an encyclopedia. This is not a position paper from a seminary professor. This is a pastoral personal letter from a real author who has apostolic authority to real Christians about 20 or so years after Christ resurrected. And and this is a very uh, pastoral tone to this. So so just remember that as you're reading. Let's look at verse 4. Through eight, it says this: "As for it is impossible." That's a big word. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up to contempt. Now, as we start to try to understand these four verses, first word you need to notice as a good Bible student is the first word for... Why is that important? Because it signals us back to the previous section. This is all one big thought. all right, we chop it into little pieces because we need to go deep dive on it. But remember, this is all part of one big thought. And the thought here started back up in chapter 5 when he said, I have more to tell you about Jesus, but I don't think you can handle it. Why? Because you're a bunch of Big babies, right, was the idea. He's like, you're still on milk. You should be these mature teachers, but instead, you're these immature takers. So he's concerned for their diet. And the reason he's concerned for their diet is because if they continue on the diet that they're on, they're not gonna grow, they're not gonna mature. What he's getting at here is he's saying, I'm, I'm concerned for the diet you're on, not because of where you're at now, but because of where it might lead you, the trajectory that it's on. So he's gonna give them this severe warning about where this trajectory that they're on could end up going. And it's fairly terrifying. The word you need to notice there is impossible. What is impossible? Well, it's impossible in the case of, he lists five things, um, to be restored to Repentance. Impossible is a pretty severe word. It's used two other times in the book of Hebrews. And each time that it's used, it's pretty impossible. One of them is it's impossible for God to lie. That's pretty impossible. Another one is it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin. That's why Jesus had to come and shed his own blood, right? So impossible is a big word. It's not unlikely, unlikely. It's not maybe, maybe it could happen. It's impossible for one to be restored back to repentance. Now, that's a big statement. We need to spend a little bit of time thinking about that. What's impossible? What kind of path could someone go on that would lead them to a place where it would be impossible for them to once again find their way back to repentance? What is this path? Well, he gives five things. Let's look at them. He gives five things in, in this four, four through eight that tell us what this path is. And by the way, one would assume, right, that the person that would be farthest from, or the person that would be, be uh, the closest to being um, unable to repent would be the, the immoral, the irreligious, the carnal, the unspiritual person, right? The person that's just so far away. What you're gonna find interesting about this list is the person who's in danger of, of being unable to repent is actually very spiritual. Like they're the person that like, when you're at church, they don't stand out. They're praying with all the Christianese, right? They, they're, la- they're raising their hands at the right time during worship. They know the right things to say. They got the church thing dialed in, you know? And by the way, that's, that's an intimidating thing for new Christians. You show up to the church and you're like, okay, I love Jesus, this is awesome, but man, this is like a subculture that I don't understand. Might as well be in a foreign country, right? And what we do is, as, as, as humans is we just sort of chameleon into our culture, right? As so we figure out, how do they talk at church? How do they walk at church? How do they greet one another church? Oh, this is a huggy church. This is not a hugging church, you know? Like, this is, this is like the bro-hug church, triple tap. Bro-hug church, double tap. Then there's the really overzealous, mmm, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying, if you make the mmm sound for too long and a hug, it, it does get strange at some point, okay, I'd say like probably two seconds is good, okay, move on from that, especially if there's back rubbing, okay, (laughs) moving on, welcome to Christian culture. Church I grew up in was like Handshake Church, hello, good morning, yes, yes, even the ladies were like, thank you, okay, here's the thing, the person that's going to be described here is very spiritual, okay, here's the five things, is impossible in the case of those who first have once been enlightened. What does that mean? It means that this person has started to see the light of the gospel, started to break into their life, started to illuminate truth, okay? Secondly, this person has tasted the heavenly gift. And what does that mean? Well, commentators argue about it because that's what commentators do. Could refer to taking of the Lord's Supper. Could refer refer just to simply tasting of the gift of the community of Christ. You know, there's a gift that is the body of Jesus. So, So this person has tasted of this gift thirdly this person has shared in the holy spirit that word shared is koinonia you're familiar with that and of course um th- it's unclear whether this refers to actual regeneration born again or if this just refers to having been uh, in a place where you've experienced the spirit of god i used to go to camp every year as a kid with all of my my pagan friends and they would experience the holy spirit and they'd get saved every year it was crazy Like, they got saved, like, seven times by the time we we got to senior year. And then they go home, and nothing changed in their life. So what happened? Now, I don't think their experience wasn't real. They experienced, well, you know, you can be a non-Christian. You can be in a Christian environment, and you could feel the Holy Spirit at work. You could feel that something's different, right? I mean, how many people were actually, they were enticed by Jesus, how different he was. But they never actually became believers, so here you can be, you can share in the Holy Spirit. Number four, you can taste the goodness of the word. That means that you even enjoy the Bible. You know how many scholars write on the Bible for a living that are not Christians? A lot. You know how many secular universities have classes on the Bible that are led and taught by seminary prophets that are not even Christians? They just think the Bible's fascinating because it is. You could taste of the word, the goodness of the word of God. And lastly, this one's interesting. He says, you can, they've, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. What does that mean? That means that the future, I'm gonna use a big word, eschatological, that is the future things of God, the future eschatological kingdom of God is breaking into this moment right now. You know, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit is working. It's what happened on Pentecost. It's what happened in the early church. is what happens all the time. Whenever Christians live kingdom lives, God's future kingdom breaks into the now. It's the craziest thing. So put it all together. He's saying it is impossible for someone who has experienced all of these things. They've seen the light of the truth. They've feasted on the goodness of the word. They've taken part in the koinonia of of the spirit. They've taken part in the body itself, yet have fallen away to be restored. Okay, what does that mean? What's the big idea? Actually, the the best way to answer that question is with the text itself. Look at verse seven. The author helpfully gives us this beautiful parable that actually explains what he's talking about. Let's look at it, verse seven. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the author says, here's kind of an example of what I'm talking about. He's saying there's two fields. This is, again, agrarian society. Jesus taught with agrarian analogies and parables all the time because they were very accessible to the original audience. So here he's using, like Christ, he's using an agrarian analogy of two fields, two completely different fields. Okay, Both fields are drinking of the same rain. Yet one field is producing nothing but thorns and the other field is producing what? Fruit. What's his point? Well, the fields represent two different types of people. The rain, of course, is what? It's the grace of God, the five things that we just looked at. The grace of his word, the grace of the spirit of God, the grace of the koinonia of the body, the fellowship with the spirit the grace of taking part in God's future kingdom, breaking into this world right now. That's rain. It's raining down constantly. We are in an era of grace. God is pouring out grace, not only in the church, but even on the non-believer. He's allowing non-Christians all the time to to experience and, and, and sort of feel the goodness of God's grace. The rain falls on it. What's the point, though? The point is that no amount of rain changes the one field, right? Because the more it rains, the more thorns come. Okay, so put it all together here. He's saying that there comes a point where, listen, the grace of God will no longer soften your heart. It will only harden the heart. Elizabeth Elliot famously said, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax have you ever noticed that the goodness of God has one effect on one person and a completely different effect on another person? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that Jesus preached the same message to the crowds, some of them worshiped them, some of them worshiped him and some of them killed him? What's the difference? Rain, it's coming down on two different fields. One field sees the goodness of God and it leads to faith and worship and repentance, which is the posture of a believer. The other field is taking in the same rain and it's leading to nothing but hatred for God. Is what he's saying here. We need to be careful at what we're doing with God's water. Do you feel that? You need to be careful because what you can do is you can go, yeah, I really like God's stuff. I like his church. I like his Bible. I like, I like his blessing. I like his morality. Good. I love this stuff. I just don't like God. And the more that you just sort of love God for his stuff, the more that you will end up doing exactly what the author says here, and that's putting Christ on the cross. You know why Judas betrayed Jesus? Because he loved himself more than he loved Jesus. And you might say, but, but Judas did so much stuff for Jesus. I mean, he saw miracles. You know, Judas, get your head around this one. Judas probably did miracles. You ever think about that? Judas probably preached just like the other guys. Remember, Jesus sent them all out two by two to go preach the kingdom and heal. So Judas did all the same things. He received all the same mercy. He drank from the same cup in many ways. He even had his feet washed by Christ, which happened to be the last thing that Jesus did for him right before he went to betray Jesus, remember? How could something so good as your rabbi, Jesus, washing your feet lead you to instantly leave the room and betray him to death? Because the more Judas drank the harder it got for him to repent. Why? Because he loved himself. He loved, loved Jesus' stuff, but he didn't really love Jesus. So he never surrendered his heart. He never actually bowed his knee. The same thing was true of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were interested in Jesus, but they weren't interested in Jesus. They killed him because he was competing with their franchise in this world. He, they killed him because he, or they threatened their position, their posture, their power, their stuff, their money. That's why they put him on the cross. And so if you look at this again here in verse 8, it says what you do when you harden yourself to this point is that you crucify once again the Son of God to your own harm. Why would he say that? Because if you are not actually interested in Jesus for, the, for, the, for, for Jesus himself, there is only one thing you'll do, and that is to kill him. Because at some point, listen, at some point, there's only one throne in your heart. And either you sit on it or Christ sits on it. So this is what I think happens. Like a lot of people come into the church and they go, this is kind of cool. These people like me. They're nice to me. This is what I did all through high school. I'm like, man, I, I, these friends are kind of hard to get along. At church, everyone just likes me. And this Bible thing, I, this is cool. Like, This is interesting. I can get on board with that. And worship seems cool. And like I like this idea. I feel something when I come to church. I feel good about it. And it just sort of appears like this person is really coming to Jesus. But really what they're doing is they're enjoying the, the trappings of Christ. They're enjoying the outworkings of Christ in his community. But they're never actually surrendering to Jesus and you can only do that for so long at some point you're going to go you know what jesus isn't really giving me what i want anymore and if you do that what i think happens is you become inoculated to the gospel and i think that's kind of what he's talking about here you know what inoculation is you get just enough of something to not get something they give you just enough of the virus and that's a triggering word right now i'm sorry i apologize just take a breath Breathing exercises. I know even the word, even the word vaccine. Okay, we're good. You need a minute? Yeah, okay. Um, okay, the idea is you inoculate, you give someone enough of the disease so that they can't get the disease. And I think what he's talking about here is, I think what he's saying is, is that you're, you're getting enough of Christianity and enough of the blessings of God that, that you actually think you've experienced Christ, but you haven't because you haven't actually experienced the joy, listen to me, of surrender to Jesus. Do you know what the call to be a Christian was? It wasn't a call to come experience blessing. It wasn't a call to make your life better. It was a call to die to self and to worship Jesus. It was a call to take yourself off the throne of your own heart and to put Christ there and say, you have authority. You're my king. You're my savior. I'm dead to this world. I'm born again into the next one. That is why repentance and faith are the same, they're part of the same coin. You're you're saying, I'm choosing to surrender to Christ. And if you've never done that, at some point, Christianity becomes dull because you're not actually born into it. You've just simply experienced some of the joy of it. I think that's what he's talking about here. Now, I'm kind of giving away, if you will, uh, my position on this, but I think the case makes itself from the text. Now, we need to stop for a minute before we move on, because this is not the whole passage. There's more. We need to stop just just briefly and take a few minutes. On the bottom of your notes, on the second page, I wanted to just spend a few minutes really thinking this through because some of you might be thinking, okay, what does this mean? Does this mean I can lose my salvation? Does this mean I can't lose my salvation? I want to try to answer just really quickly three questions that I think are the biggest questions that come out of this passage. So the first question I think think you're probably going to ask is, does this mean you can lose your salvation? Now, there's three majority positions within what would be considered Orthodox Christianity, that, that, that see this verse saying three different things. And by the way, we can disagree on this. It's okay. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay, we can disagree on this. It's okay. This is not a divide over issue, but it's worth talking about. There's three different positions. The first position, it all comes down to whether or not the, pe- the people that um, Hebrews is talking about are believers or not. Okay? The first position is that the, the people being described here, the person being described here, is a Christian losing their faith walking away from Jesus. That's the first position, that they were born again and then they were unborn again, that they were regenerated and then de-regenerated, that they at one point were saved and then at another point are no longer saved. That is the—that is one of the positions. Another position is less common is that this is talking about believers just simply losing out on rewards, okay? I don't think that position holds much worth, but it's, it's out there. The third position is this, that this passage is not talking about born-again believers. It's talking about people that experienced Christianity, but were never truly saved. Were never truly born again. And that's the position I'm going to argue for, okay? That's the position I'm going to argue for. And I'm going to do it in three ways. I think there's three reasons that this is not talking about believers. It's talking about unbelievers. First of all, the passage itself If you spend time interacting with the passage itself, you're going to find, uh, I think, logically, that this is referring to non-Christians. The first reason is the list that's given here seems to point to people that have tasted of Christianity but have not necessarily actually believed it. You notice the word tasted is used multiple times in the list. It seems to me these are people that are tasting of Christianity but have not actually been born again. Another reason is I want you to think about the parable that's given. We have two fields. Does the one field start out growing fruit and then grow thorns? Does it? No. The one field always bears thorns. The other field always bears fruit. So this doesn't seem like a field that starts out bearing fruit and then loses its fruit. It doesn't seem like that's what it's saying here. The third reason is in verse nine, and we'll get there in a minute. I'll point that out in a second. Uh, So just hold, hold hold that thought. Now, not only do I think the passage points to this, the Bible has tons of examples of what appear to be converts ending up not truly being converts, not truly being saved. Let me give you some examples. We have Jesus gave the parable of the wheat and the tares, remember? We have the wheat. Somebody came in in the middle of the night in the dark and sowed tares into the wheat. And, and the, the, um, the farmer comes up to the owner or whatever and he says, do you want me to go remove all the tares? I said, nope, just let them grow up. And as they grow up, it will begin to become clear who is wheat and who is tares, right? Uh, so the idea, though, is not, oh, no, wheat became tares. It's not, it was wheat and then it turned into tares. That, that's not what it says. Same thing with sheep and the goats, right? At one point, there'll be a great separation. Sheep being those who belong to Christ, goats being those who don't. The separation is not, oops, these goats turned into, or these uh, sheep turned into goats. Doesn't say that, does it? Here's another one. The the kingdom is like a big net. Catches a bunch of fish. Catches some of the right fish and some of the wrong fish. And when they get into the boat, there's a great sorting that happens. It doesn't say that these fish turned into another kind of fish. It seems very logical from the scripture that there is two types of people. Those in Adam and those in Christ. Not those in Christ who somehow lost their salvation and went back to being in Adam in sin and fallenness. And not only that, oh, by the way, think about the throne room, right? There will be those who will come to Jesus and say, look at all the stuff we did. We cast out demons. We did all these mighty works. And what is Jesus going to say to them? I never knew you. Yeah, that's great. You experienced, you tasted, you enjoyed. You, You did stuff, just like Judas even. You did stuff. The Holy Spirit maybe even worked through you. That's common grace. But you never bowed the knee. You never truly received Christ. You were never truly born again. One last reason I think this is the the right position is the Bible has a lot to say about what has been referred to as the perseverance of the saints. That means that if God saved you when you were dead in trespasses and sins, you better believe God's gonna get you the rest of the way. Okay, If God got you when you weren't looking for him, I'm pretty sure he can make sure that you get all the way to the end. Let me give you just a couple passages. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, uh, it's known as the golden chain, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why we're saved, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now note here, and those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified also what? Walked away? Glorified. What is glorified? It means you make it to heaven. The reason they call it the golden chain is because the way Paul lays this out is he links each of these together in a way that you cannot unlink them. If you've been predestined, then you've been glorified. There is no unlinking those chains. I believe God saves, and God saves effectually. God saves fully. When he saves, he does it, and he does it all the way. Again, we can disagree. It's okay. It's okay. People like to argue about this subject a lot. Uh, another one, Philippians 1, 1.6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Who began the good work in you? Yeah, Jesus, God, all the right answer. Um, began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He didn't say might bring it to completion doesn't say could bring it to completion. Unless you de-regenerate, unless you walk away. No, he says he will. So I think the right question to ask is not, will I lose my faith? Listen, this is important. The right question to ask is, do I have saving faith? The author here wants us to have assurance. We'll see that in a moment. What he doesn't want us to have is false assurance and we sold false assurance in Western evangelicalism for 30 years, and so, we sold it so fast and so quick at youth groups and conferences and things that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that think they are saved because they experienced the Spirit at one point but never truly bowed the knee. We need to examine our faith, and that's the call of the passage. Let me answer another question. Does this mean that there are sins I can commit that would make me Unforgivable. Okay. Well, think about what the passage is saying. It's not saying it's impossible for God to forgive sin. Did you notice that? What is it saying? It's saying it's impossible for those who have walked away after drinking this much grace to find repentance again. They're not gonna come looking for it. Their hearts have been so hardened that there's not gonna be a pursuing there. So there's a difference there. Sin is not what is unforgivable, but I will say this. Sin germinates into the state where you will possibly no longer repent. Sin is a posture of the heart. Sin is a posture of a heart that says, I will choose my will over God's will. That's why sin needs to die for the Christian because for the Christian, we are not ruled by ourselves anymore or by the world. We're ruled by Christ. We put our sin to death. We say, I'm not ruling myself anymore. Sin creates a pattern and a mindset and a lifestyle that says, I rule my own life. So it's not that God can't forgive. It's not that there's, a, the only sin God can't forgive, it says, according to scripture, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is what? It is to reject the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit to be saved in the first place. I know these are big things. Thank you for tracking with me. This is important to think about, okay? Remember Jesus' words to his disciples. What did he say? He was talking about rich men, right? He, he, he said, oh, how hard to get a rich man into the kingdom. In fact, he basically said it's impossible. He says, it's like getting a camel through the eye of a needle, that's hyperbole for impossible. And what are the disciples? They're like, well, who can be saved? I just want you to remember what Jesus said. What is impossible with man is impossible with God, or is possible with God. Okay, so maybe we are saying, man, I, I got this neighbor and, and they used to go to church and now they hate God, they hate Christians, they hate Christianity, they're, they're hardened. Okay, so I'm just gonna stop praying for them because obviously they're never gonna find repentance. Don't do that. They may never find repentance on their own, but guess what? God saves And what is impossible with man is possible with God. Pray for them. Preach the gospel to them. We don't know when someone has crossed a threshold where they're no longer gonna find repentance. We don't know. So we keep pursuing. We keep praying. We keep preaching. We keep putting the gospel in front of them because it's the gospel that has the power to transform. It's the gospel that has the power to save. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work of salvation. You can't talk anybody into the kingdom. Holy Spirit does it. So keep preaching. Keep pursuing. The third question we might ask, Kind of gotta hurry up here, How can I know if myself or someone I know has reached this point? And I kind of already answered this. But first of all, if you're asking that about yourself right now, that's a good sign. If you're asking, boy, what if this is me? That's a question that signals that there's still a heartbeat, that the patient is not dead. This is talking about someone that is so callous, so inoculated, so hardened to the gospel and the grace of God is so much rain is poured and poured and poured that the last thing in the world that they want is the grace of God. So if you're sitting here and you go, maybe that's me, good. That's the purpose of the passage. It's the tugboat bumping into you saying, hey, watch out. Because as Christians, I would argue we should have assurance. We should have assurance. Assurance. It's something God actually wants us to have. It's something we can have. It's something we should pursue. We shouldn't have to sit around worrying every day whether we're a Christian. we'll talk more about that in a minute. So let's get back into the passage. The the passage continues. It doesn't stop there. And again, this isn't the author of Hebrews giving us a a systematic theology of losing your salvation. No, this is a pastoral warning. Let's continue to let the pastoral warning unfold. Now we get into the commendation, if you're following along on the notes. The commendation, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, speak in what way? Warning, watch out, this could happen. Though though we speak about this, yet, he says, in your case, beloved, that's a very endearing word, by the way, only used once in Hebrews, and it's right here. Loved ones, cherished ones, beloved. He's very affectionate toward these. Even though we just called them babies, he still loves them, right? That was last week. Beloved. He says, we feel, now I don't know who we is. Maybe he's got a mouse in his pocket. Maybe, I don't know. I was curious about that this week. We feel sure of better things. Things that belong to what? Salvation. So he says, here's something that can happen, but I don't think it's gonna happen to you. But I still wanna put it in front of you just to keep you on the right course. Because why? Because they're holding loose and they're they're, they're falling back. Away from Christ. So like a good pastor, he's warning them of what can happen. You had a conversation like this with one of my kids the other day. It was like, it was just normal kid stuff, right? One of them hits the other one because one of them doesn't do what the other one wants them to do. And it's just like, okay, that's what they do. But they're little, and they're not very big, and they're, they're hitting each other. It doesn't hurt them much. There's no blood. There's no bruises, right? So, but we got to deal with it because it's what parents do. Okay, let's sit down. Let's talk about this. Why did you hit them? Okay. Uh, well, they made me angry. They didn't do what I wanted. Okay. So I sat down with one of my, one of my kids the other day, um, and I said, okay, we need to talk about this. Let's, let's just say you carry this trajectory out for the next 15 years. Let's just say you keep hating people whenever you feel frustrated. Maybe not a big deal right now. How big of it is, a deal is it gonna be when you're 25? It's gonna be a pretty big deal. And I explained to them, I said, you know, if you, if you get angry and you pick up a weapon and you hurt somebody, you go to prison. And I could see the fear of God sort of like coming in. <laughs> oh, No, I'm not, what am I doing? I'm not saying, hey, you're going to go to prison. You're a murderer, right? But I'm saying, watch out. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> Calling the cops right now. You guys ever do that? You ever joke? No, don't do that. That's bad. Yeah. Uh, you stole your sister's snacks? Calling the police. No. <laughs> What am I saying? I'm saying, I don't think you're over here, but I'm saying, man, trajectories turn into destinations, don't they? And microscopic trajectories carried out over really long periods of time lead to really bad outcomes. So, what the author of Hebrews is saying, I don't think that you're apostate. I don't think that you're in this place of the impossibility of repentance. I don't think that you're so hardened that you're not willing to hear the gospel, but I see you letting loose of Christ. And they were, weren't they? They were going back to Judaism. They're going, maybe we don't need Jesus. Maybe we could just go back to the way things were. They're holding loose. They're drawing back. He says, stop it. Draw near. Hold fast. Hold on to Jesus. Hang on. Because if you keep holding loose, you don't know where this is going to go. It's just a warning. And then verse 10, he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. In other words, he he sees your fruit. He sees you're not bearing thorns. He sees you're bearing fruit. He knows which field you are. There's fruit here. And the love that you have shown for whose name? What does it say? Whose name is this shown love for? His name. That's a sign of a believer. A believer lives for whose name? For God's name. Here's another sign of the believer you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he sees their field. He says, the Lord sees your field. He sees the fruit. Here's the fruit in the fields. Two things, kingdom living and kingdom loving. First, kingdom living. He says, the Lord sees that you're working, you're working, you're producing fruit and you're doing it for his name, for his glory, not for self. And then the second thing is, he sees that you're loving one another within the body, the Christians, the saints. You know, that is one of the most Clear ways that we see that someone belongs to the Lord. They will know you are Christians by your what? By your love. We learn this in First John. Jesus tells us this that like, they're going to know who you are by the way you love one another. It's not just squishy love in general. It's this particular fearsome, committed love for the saints within the body, one for another. Brothers and sisters loving each other in radical ways. He's saying that God is looking and he sees this fruit. And he knows that you're a fruit-bearing field. The sign of the believer is not charisma Or power, what is the sign of the believer? It's humility, it is affection for the body, and it is faith and it is trust in the Lord Jesus. And we get those things flipped. We assume maturity means you're really charismatic, or maturity means you're really gifted, or maturity means you know a lot, or maturity means you're really a powerful presence in the church. Okay, all that can be fake. All of it. All of that can be done for yourself. Every sermon, this is terrifying. Let me get real. Every sermon, I could come up here and preach for 50 years and it could all be for me. That's terrifying. How's that possible, Sam? Well, it's kind of cool. It's kind of fun to get up here and preach the word. Only God knows if I'm doing it for him, if I'm doing it for the love of the body, if I'm doing it for the love of the church, the love of the saints, the love of God's glory, if I'm doing it for myself. Oh, Lord, protect me. We have to recognize that the measure of maturity is not charisma or power or effectiveness. It's humility, trust in God. That's what we need to look for. It's what we need to. That's why the, the qualifications of an elder in the Bible have very little to do with qual, with, with, char, uh, with um, wow, my mind have very little to do with charisma or ability. They have everything to do with character. Is God doing a work in your heart by his grace? Is the reign of God producing fruit in your life? Okay, the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, okay? Not just the flashy things. There's a whole, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, there's a whole, Paul's whole point there. It's not about the flashy gifts. It's not about the the, the charismatic things that make you look really good on stage. It's about the things that nobody sees. It's about the moment when you choose to do something that you would never do in your own self because only the spirit could produce it. Those are the things. Love is the whole goal. Abiding in the vine, letting Jesus produce his fruit through you. So, he's going to end here, lastly, with the call. The call, verse 11 and 12. Now, after warning them of where this could go, and then after, after commending them, um, their fruit, now he's going to call them, here's the imperative, here's the action that we all need to tune into, here's what we need to do this morning. He's going to call them to three things, and I put this in your outline, just go ahead and write them all down. The first, he's going to call them to assurance, he's going to call them to attentiveness, and he's going to call them to apprenticeship. Assurance, attentiveness, and apprenticeship. Let's just unpack those quickly. Verse 11, he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the first call is he wants them to have assurance. He wants them to, how do you see that? He says, we desire that each one of you would have full assurance. Assurance of what? Of hope until the end. That means God doesn't want you, believer, Christian. He doesn't want you to have false assurance, but he does want you to have true assurance. He wants you your head to hit the pillow at night and go, I know that I am beloved. I know that I am born again. I know that I am adopted. I know that I am saved and justified and I will be glorified because I've been chosen by God. He wants you to have that confidence. The question is, how do we have it? How do we have that kind of confidence? Well, to answer that question, we need to zoom out to the whole section of Scripture that we've been studying through. What is it that he's saying this, these guys need to do? They need to cling to Christ. Listen to me. If you're clinging to Christ, you're a believer. If you're just all about christian stuff, and about how good you can look and how much praise you can get in a Christian culture, how much stuff you can do for your own glory, watch out. If you're clinging to Christ as your sacrifice, your priest, you are a branch, man, and you're just, collect, you're just connected to the vine. If that's you, be assured. If Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, we ought to have assurance, the call of this is for them to grow up by eating the milk or to leave the milk of works and Judaism and to move on to the meat of the gospel which says Jesus is sufficient just believe in that believe isn't just a state of mind it's trust put your whole trust in him if your trust is in the person of Christ completely you are saved if you've believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth the confession is that you have claimed Christ as your own we can have assurance now, we are not assured, notice this, we're not assured by our working, we're assured by our hearing and our abiding. This is the whole point of the passage. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and they know me. In other words, they hear my word and they respond. That's what a believer does. The Bible calls us to interact with assurance multiple times. Let me read you a couple of passages Philippians 2.12, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, there's another, that endearing word again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, keep following Christ. Keep pressing in, not just when I'm here, but even when I'm gone. Work. Listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say work for your own salvation, does he? Why? Well, because that's not the gospel. It's not work so that you know you've done enough to achieve salvation. What does he say? He says, work, work out. You catch that? Out. What does that mean? It means you're just as, if you're a believer, you're just as saved right now as you'll ever be. What we do is we grow into the reality of what has already been given us. We work out our salvation. Okay, he he says more. With fear and trembling. Well, that means that you probably should take it pretty seriously. For it is God who works in you. Why, why can we have confidence, Paul? Here's, here it is. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We can have confidence. We can have confidence in our assurance because we are working on our own salvation. We can believe that it is God who is at work. God saved me and God is saving me and God will save me. That's the gospel. God has saved me. God is saving me. God will save me. He's the one doing the work. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 13.5. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So what we're doing this morning, is it feels a little uncomfortable, like really having to think about this. Am I really in the faith? Actually, biblically, we're supposed to. We're supposed to think about it. Are we saved? Are we Christians? Are we really in the faith? Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? So here's what we're looking for when we're looking for assurance. We're not looking for our working. We're looking for his working in us. Are you seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? It's not your fruit, you're just a stick, you're just a branch. He's the vine. Are you if you're attached to the vine, you will produce fruit. That's what Jesus said in John 15. If you're attached to the vine, fruit's coming. And he'll prune you so you produce more fruit. What you're looking for is the Spirit of God producing fruit in my life. And if He is, there's assurance. We all struggle. We all have moments. The believer is convicted of sin. The believer produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. The believer uh, is, is looking to make much of Christ. And we grow up into this salvation, but we can have confidence. So number one, the call is to have assurance. Number two, the call is to have attentiveness. Attentiveness, look at what he says. He says, so that, well, let's start in verse 11. We desire each one of you to, ha- to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be, note the word, sluggish, okay? For those of you that that like to study the Bible and how it's written, this forms what's called an inclusio with an earlier verse, uh you can write it down in earlier verse chapter 5 verse 11 where he said about this we have much to say it is hard to explain since you have been dull of hearing that word dull is sluggish same greek word what he's doing here is he's putting a giant book in and he's saying this completes the section and the whole point of the section can really come down to this be attentive don't be sluggish tune in take it seriously I really want you to see this. Don't tune out. We're almost done. I want you to note that attentiveness comes as a result of assuredness. Look at it. Look at it. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope unto the end, so that you may not be sluggish. What is he saying? He's saying that if you're assured, you will be attentive. Now, that's counterintuitive, right? Think about it. This is a lot of the reason people don't like the doctrine of assurance. If you're too comfortable, if you're too sure of your salvation, then you, you might not be attentive. Not if you're a believer. Not if the spirit of God is in you. What, what he's saying here is he's saying that if you have assurance, then you will be attentive. What that means is this, is that it, it, to but as simply as I can, when you know who you are, you will know whose you are and you will know what to do and how to do it. When you know that you belong to the Lord, guess what? You live like it. So it's not that we need to to be really scared all the time, and that'll force us to live right for the Lord. No, it's in our assurance. It's in the comfort of knowing that God has justified us, saved us, predestined us, elected us, bought us, adopted us, put his spirit within us. It is out of believing those realities that come the works of attentiveness and holiness and love for the saints, When we know who we are, we know how to act. That's why the gospel always comes first. That's why Paul, in his letters, he always laid the gospel down first. And then he said, now believe this, and you'll know how to live. Read the book of Ephesians. Read the book of 1 Peter. All of the the epistles start with who you are, and then they tell you how to live. If you don't know who you are, you won't know how to live. You need to know who you are and whose you are, and you'll know how to live. We always go back to the gospel If you're struggling with sin in your life, struggling with doubt, struggling with anything in your life, the answer is to go back and believe the gospel. And out of that will flow attentiveness. Lastly, really simply, I love this point. He calls them to apprenticeship. He says, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. But instead, he says, but imitators, note that word, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know what imitating we you know what imitators means? Discipleship. He's saying, "Look, I want you to have assurance. I want you to be attentive. And the way that you're going to grow is by finding someone that loves Jesus, that you see Jesus in, that's been following Jesus longer or stronger than you, and go copy them. It's very simple. That's an amazing strategy for growth for the believer. Go do what other Christians are doing. it's, it's, it's apprenticeship. That's what Jesus modeled in discipleship." So I just want to encourage you guys I want to encourage you guys, focus on me. I want to, I want to encourage you guys, to, to copy somebody that's godly. Well, how do I know what kind of person to copy? We learn right here. Faith, patience, love for the saints, work for God's name. Who does it say that we're supposed to copy? We're supposed to copy those that have faith and patience to inherit eternal promises. So it's not just the most winsome person, not just the most powerful person, not just the most charismatic person, not just the most flashy person. It's the person that's the most humble, that's the most patient, that has the most faith. Those are the people like, man, I wanna be like that person. It's probably the person in the room that's not the loudest. That's the person we need to imitate. So in conclusion here, the call of the passage, this whole passage that we're studying is to not hold loose, it's to hold fast. And it's to draw near to Christ and to have assurance to make our calling and our election sure, to open our ears, to eat the meat of the gospel, to cling to Christ. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is abiding. That's what we do. Amen? Why don't you stand? We'll sing another song. And Jeremy can come on up. <laughs> Father, we thank you for passages like this that are technical, And they force us to lean in and and open our ears and think critically. My sense from this passage, Lord, is is not condemnation, but calling. Lord, you're calling. Maybe people in this room right now that have been around church before, maybe they've heard the gospel, maybe they've, they've experienced some of the good things that you have, but they've never really bowed the knee. I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would press them with your goodness. That your goodness would lead to repentance. That the sun would melt the wax, not harden the clay. That they would not be, that we would not be inoculated by your goodness. That your goodness would win us over, and soften our hearts. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would make our calling and election sure. That we would test our faith and that we would walk away more assured and more confident, Lord, of your grace. And of your goodness, so Father, as we pray this, play this last song. I just pray for a time of reflection. Pray, Lord, that we would all consider these things, Father, as we sing to you, In Jesus' name, Amen.